Features podcast. I am Laura Main and I'm here with my co-host. Hello, this is Adrian Smith here. And uh, thank you everybody for continuing to support the podcast so far. We also, we hit our 100th follower on Twitter uh, last week. So that's very exciting. So thank you to everybody for getting in touch with us through that. So today we are doing uh, the film Shogun Assassin. And later on in the programme, we will have our guest, Dr. Jonathan Root from the University of Greenwich to uh, to come and share his experiences of that film and his projects with Japanese cinema with us. Cool. Looking forward to that. Yes. And he will know much more about this film than we do. So much more. I can't yeah. I can't emphasize that enough. Mm. <laughs> Do we need a synopsis of the plot? I, I will have a stab at explaining the plot of Shogun Assassin. Uh, it was released in 1980 and directed by Robert Houston. But directed is an interesting word here because it was essentially cut together from two films from the Lone Wolf and Cub series. So 12 minutes of the 12, 12 minutes of the film uh, from Lone Wolf and Cub Sword of Vengeance and uh, much of the rest of the film, I think, from Lone Wolf and Cub Baby Cart at the River Styx. So mm-hmm. we've got this hybrid mashup exploitation film um, edited together and there's a sort of it was kind of rescored, re-narrated. It was kind of changed. Um, yeah, it's like a really early example of remix culture. Yeah, kind of. Um, it's like a hip hop film before hip hop. <laughs> it's really, it's really interesting, isn't it? That they they just took the images and then completely replaced all of the sound, all of the music, the the sound effects, the voices. The story is completely different as well. Have you seen either of the original? films um no but i've been sort of looking into Mm. what the differences are between there's a lot of plot difference it's Mm. very simplified well i mean let's start with the plot of yeah let's start with the plot of shogun assassin Mm. so um now it's uh we kind of a lot of it isn't really explained but when the film starts we meet um our main protagonist uh ogami who is the um the, he used to be the shogun uh, decapitator, so the assassin for the shogun. And um, he has sort of, uh, his wife has been murdered. We don't really find out why, but he's left parenting his young son, Diagoro. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, am I? I don't know. Daigoro? Diagoro? Daigoro. Who knows? So the film is told from Daigoro's point of view, which is an interesting difference, I think, from the films that this is mm. cut from so it's Daigoro who is very young at the start of the film maybe two three years old um mm-hmm. and it's a kind of uh, through this very sort of deadpan narration he tells us about um his father and this journey that they go on when I was little my father was famous he was the greatest samurai in the empire and he was the shogun's decapitator. He cut off the heads of 131 lords for the shogun. 
the sort of Ogami sort of uh, just basically wheels his kid around in an antique wooden cart uh, and slays enemies as he goes. Yeah, and that that cart is brilliant. It's got knives that pop out the wheels, uh, removable handles with blades. It's like the ultimate tricked out um, uh, pushchair. It's great. Um, yeah, it's it's a kind of interesting aesthetic seeing this uh, this guy who has very much the thousand yard stare of a new parent. Like the way he looks at you, the way he just walks determinedly, like he's just trying to get through the day. Yeah. He's not had any sleep. His hair is a mess. He's not bathed in three days. Um, he's just getting through it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they, um, he sort of traverses uh, the land with his son in this cart and fends off uh, attacks by um, the Shogun's sort of uh, minions, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's, there's it's ninjas, ninjas, lots of ninjas. Yeah. Um, so, ninjas everywhere. And it, the, the attacks themselves are, are very, very violent. Um, but they're all, they're beautiful. Like, it's just, <laughs> I was struck by the beauty of this. I mean, it's very exploitation-y. But mm -hmm. the, the beauty of these scenes where, you know, you've got a scene where Ogami splits someone's head in two with a sword, but it's like balletic and poetic. Isn't that amazing, that, that bit? Yeah, the way that the, you know, <laughs> there's a sort of, poeticness to the way the blood yeah. spurts out of people's cartoid people's kind of oh, arteries it's, <laughs> yeah it's like they've all got really high blood pressure i mean it just sprays out at such enormous speed and volume um i mean i've never severed a major artery so i don't know if blood really comes out that fast or that high but it's pretty spectacular the the distance that the blood will travel in this film yeah, and you never quite get used to it either. No. Although, ha having said that, this is slightly off topic, but years ago, I was providing um, video equipment for filming um, an operation. And I had to go into the operating theatre to help set this stuff up. And it was an old Victorian, it was the, like a university hospital, huge ceiling, maybe 10, 12 foot high. And one of the doctors pointed out to me that up on the ceiling was blood. Like somebody's blood had shot that high during an operation and hit the ceiling. So maybe this is not that far from the truth. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, we could have a chat about how far someone's blood actually shoots out of their yeah. neck when you try and decapitate them with a sword. Mm, or did, can, can people still stay standing up when their head's been cut off? That, that's like another question this film poses. It poses many questions. Yeah, yeah. the science of Shogun Assassin. Uh, <laughs> the biology of Shogun Assassin. Yeah. Let's get a scientist on board. To, to It is pretty amazing. That shot when he splits the guy's head in, in half and you're just sort of standing there. He's standing there. The person is standing there and then just slowly it opens up like two halves of a coconut. It's, um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's breathtaking. Um, and there is so many... <laughs> Of so many of the scenes and the way they're choreographed um, made me think of the films of Tarantino, for example. Clearly, clearly he draws very he he draws from and if you if you like homage, he give he pays homage. Mm. I, I don't know. He but he's clearly influenced by uh, oh, a lot yeah. of the violence in this mm. film specifically. I think it doesn't. I, I have to admit, I'm not that familiar with Kill Bill. I've only seen them once, and I'm not a really big fan. But at the end, isn't Shogun Assassin 
the film that she watches with her little kid. Yeah. They sit down together to watch a movie and it's this one. I yeah, think. her kid requests it as a bedtime movie, which is just <laughs> precious. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's a heartwarming tale of a parent and their child. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this film, for the people I've mentioned it to, uh, the response I've gotten has been, this was my introduction to Kung Fu Cinema. This, this, just watching this film for the first time was such a meaningful experience. Um, mm. And I think there are many filmmakers for whom that is the case. I think it has a very special place in not just cult film history, but, you know, film history. Uh, mm. And it's, it's got a very special place for fans and uh, practitioners. Yeah, and it, it's a film that I've been aware of for years, and I don't know why it took me this long to watch it. I think possibly I was inspired by watching The Mandalorian recently because that draws very heavily on the image of the lone wolf and cub. I mean, I don't, have you seen The Mandalorian? Do you know this? Uh, yeah, story? I haven't seen all of it, yeah. but I uh, I was um, reading about that. I, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how far... I mean, I've read speculation that The Mandalorian mm. seems to be borrowing from lone yeah. wolf and cub. <laughs> Certainly the image of this lone warrior pushing along a... Mm. a young child in a in a pram and he appears to be a kind of roaming shogun or um, assassin for hire mm. there but anyway that's i think that's probably what reminded me oh yes i've always wanted to watch lone wolf and cub so that's why i finally watched those films and then um this one because this was the film that everybody used to talk about mm. when that i remember uh, and of course it was it was also included as far as i know on one of the um the video nasty lists mm -hmm. so it got it got caught up in that debate which is really funny because the original films they're from 1972 i think so they're like a good decade before the video nasty most of the films on the video nasty list mm -hmm. but then because it was reissued in 1980 in this form and it was shown in British cinemas, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it but got it an the... X certificate from the BBFC, yeah. I think, in 1981, but it was slight, slightly cut. Yeah, oh, right, okay. It was the video release that got into trouble. Although, my, from what I can tell, if you owned a copy, it could be seized, but you would not be put in jail. So it was on the Category 3 list, which meant it was too naughty for you, but just taking it away was your punishment, rather than jail time, like some of the other lists so just taking um, away that, your toys instead of throwing yeah you in jail. that whole thing yeah i'm slightly too young to have seen any of the video nasties at the time but i remember the newspaper headlines and being just intrigued i wanted to see those films it was a great advert mm. for all those movies at the time but uh yeah i mean I I, i'm really looking forward to grilling jonathan on this actually mm. uh, but for anyone who's not aware uh, before 1984, before their Video Recording Act, the release of videos in the UK, as far as I'm aware, wasn't regulated. And that's why mm. you got all this kind of, you uh, had this sort of video nasty controversy around films that were released on VHS, which had not been uh, passed the censor. And so could yeah. basically, you, you got kind of lots of violent stuff and exploitation things. And a lot of yeah. stuff was sort of circulated by, a, you know, a bootlegged and circulated among fans as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, these were all films that were going to corrupt the nation's youth yeah there was that whole Basically. kind of moral controversy at which evil dead mm. was kind of central <laughs> <laughs> kind of at the center i know <laughs> evil dead this one of the one of the funniest and silliest films 
and somehow they believed it was going to corrupt all these children. I mean, Evil Dead just now, it seems so satirical and it seems so ridiculous. But uh, if you compare a film film like Evil Dead to everything that's around today, it doesn't seem particularly violent or nasty. But watching Shogun Assassin, I was thinking about what the reaction at the time would have been, because even today it is... um, breathtakingly violent but i mean that mm. not in a bad way i think it's oh, yeah. <laughs> it's incredible uh, yeah. but i can just imagine um how that was i would i would be interested to know how that was received at the time and how that mm. was framed as part of that controversy yeah i mean i think in terms of its relation to other japanese films i'm not i'm not a, an expert in that area but i've seen several of these kind of samurai type movies and this level of violence is is similar to things like Lady, Lady Snowblood mm. and films of that kind of era. Um, you know, the, the, the extreme, I think particularly when they're based on manga, which is what this, this does come from a manga originally. And I think the sort of operatic slow motion violence is a way of recreating on screen some of the way the violence was drawn on the page. Mm. So yeah, so the, it's not just coming out of nowhere, but yeah, it, how it was received, how it was viewed in the 80s, other than by very gleeful fans who, who loved it, I don't know. But the the, the reviews at the time, I, I did have a quick look, and they're mainly quite, quite positive. The, the monthly film bulletin called it skillfully dubbed, which they almost never say films were dubbed well. Um, but they, they praised the dubbing that's created this new version of the film. And said that the whole thing, the sword play, although some of the narrative doesn't make a lot of sense, like you were saying before, um, but they they said in the review that it was they call um, they say that things are handled with admirable vigor, so they were quite positive. And and funny enough, in that review, there's no real mention of it being controversial with all the blood and everything like that. Mm. They call it ample. They say about ample bloodshed, but they don't say that as a bad thing. There's no kind of moral hand-wringing about the uh the level of exploitation yeah and the um i was looking at the variety review and again it's uh they barely talk about the film except to list some of its production background and to say that you know it Mm. it could possibly possibly a possible attraction for uh cult audiences and mass audiences that's pretty much all they say about the film Mm. which is kind of surprising yeah, you would expect a lot more shock or horror or something, but maybe because it was Japanese and because it it appears to be, you know, it's kind of like a traditional historical type film that kind of distances the audience a little bit from the violence. Like if it was a gangster movie and this was all John Woo style gunplay, maybe there would be slightly more worries about the violence. But, but you know... Not that many people are going to be able to go out and copy the kind of moves and swordplay and things that are here. So perhaps that adds a bit of distance. I don't know. Well, um, you say that, Adrian, but you seem to be thinking about it earlier in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) True. Yeah, that's very true. Um, Yeah. But this is a film with quite excellent exploitation credentials. So uh, Mm. directed by Robert Houston and his partner, David Wiseman, who bought the rights for $50,000 from the American office of Toho Studios. And it was um, distributed by New World Pictures, uh, Roger Corman's outfit, um, to predominantly uh, to movie circuits in the United States, which I guess were more sort of cult uh, 
more sort of regional grindhouse grindhouse kind of uh, cinemas and then sort of released on video videotape um i think uh who released the videotape was it was universal universal um, video oh no um in the uk uh uk was vipco, VIPCO yeah yeah who, who were well known for doing that mm. in the video nasty kind of world at the time um, I thought it was interesting just going back to what you were saying about the variety thing. One thing that they pointed out, and this is something I've been talking to my students about recently, they say that the film has already opened in Detroit with best results in black-oriented houses. And that's, that ties in with something that I've been reading about with martial arts cinema in America mm-hmm. at the time, which that it appealed predominantly to non-white audiences. There was a lot of, there was a big audience for Bruce Lee films and Shaw Brothers films in predominantly black cinemas in the 70s. Okay. And um, and one suggestion for that is that it's because Hollywood was not really making films about non-white heroes. Hmm. You know, mostly Hollywood movies are white guys coming in and kicking butts and saving the day. And apart from black exploitation, which didn't really last all that long, there was still a real lack of non-white heroes in film. And so it would seem that um, black audiences really latched on to Asian cinema because here you had films with non-white protagonists. Mm. So I don't know. That's, and that's yeah. something I've read. I don't know. That's really how interesting. True it is, but it's um, an interesting idea. Yeah. That this ties in with that. One other thing you mentioned about um, Robert Houston and David Weissman. One yeah. thing I liked when I was looking this up is that David Weissman had worked for Andy Warhol yeah. and Fel- and also Fellini in really? the past. Yeah. Fellini, and I what think, was that? What, what, what did he work on? <laughs> I think Weissman did the US poster for Eight and a Half. Oh, right. Okay. Eight and a Half, is that what it's called? Uh-huh. I'm rubbish at Fellini films. That that one, anyway. Um <laughs> But again, with this whole idea of it being a remix of taking and reappropriating and turning something existing into a new piece of artwork mm. is straight out of Andy Warhol's playbook. Yeah. And so I like the fact that this film, although it's a kind of exploitation grindhouse classic, it has its roots in pop art and this sort of 60s counterculture. Wow, that is a bloody interesting point. Um, mm. And I was thinking about appropriation. Uh, because this film is an appropriation for Western audiences mm. of the Lone Wolf and Cub series, like it's it's a mashup, a recut, and um, an appropriation. But then Shogun Assassin itself has been appropriated by you know filmmakers. I mentioned Tarantino, mm. um, and it's it's got this kind of legacy in Western cinema history as well. Mm. So yeah, this idea of a text that has based on an original recut, appropriated, circulated, is kind of interesting. Yeah, and the soundtrack has been used particularly, I mean, I believe it was created on a Moog synthesizer, Mm -hmm. um, which was quite popular in disco music at the time. But a lot of the dialogue from the film has popped up in um, particularly Wu-Tang Clan uh, album. There's an album called Liquid Swords, and that features several lifts of dialogue straight from the film. Do we have a clip for that? I can put, I'll put one in here. Yeah, that would work. Oh, mad one. We see your trap. You can never escape. 
your fate. Submit with honor to a duel with my son. I agree. I see you using an old style. I wondered where you'd learned it from. Yeah, so you can hear dialogue, uh, the voiceover. There's even a bit in one of the tracks I was listening to earlier when the guy towards the end of the film gets his throat slit and he just has time to deliver a monologue about the sound it makes when the wind blows through a, mm-hmm. a slit throat. Uh, they put all of that in. That's all on the album. I've had a really interesting interview with RZA, RZA, mm-hmm. Ruzza, I've heard him called. You've never anyway, sounded more white guy than you do right now. I know, it's rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> the, one, the, the producer and member of um, Wu-Tang Clan, there's a great interview with him on YouTube talking about his 10 favourite kung fu films that he has sampled in their records over the years. They Obviously, the name Wu-Tang Clan comes from a, um, a martial arts movie. In that clip, he talks about Shogun Assassin. I'll put a link to that in the show notes because that's really interesting but the Wu-Tang Clan are very devoted to martial arts cinema during lockdown they created a website I'd found called 36 Cinema and they are doing live um, viewings uh, of martial arts films and some of them with live commentaries so you can sign up on the website and then watch the film streaming with a commentary by one of the Wu-Tang Clan, or they even did Man from Hong Kong with um, the director, Brian Trenchard-Smith. So, you know, not only are they using the the films in their music, they're also promoting the films to their audience of fans, mm. which I think is really interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I do you know if anyone's published on Shogun Assassin and that topic? You know, a, the sort of appropriation of that text. They they should. Huh. I haven't looked to be honest. We probably I should have probably. No, I did have a look, but I couldn't this. find anything. So I just wondered <laughs> okay. if yeah, if I mean your your yeah. knowledge is more detailed than Google Scholar um, is definitely. No. So. <laughs> there, yeah, I think there's definitely there's something in there. Definitely, yeah, well, if you wanted to explore that, you could. I mean, I I wouldn't know where to begin. Um, I'd be I'd be very <laughs> kind of out of my uh, depth on that um. one. And the fact that I can't even, I didn't even know how to talk about Wu-Tang Clan properly means I am going to be out of my depth on that one as well, I think. Uh, but the, I mean, Shogun Assassin, while thin on plot, is full of imagination and meaning. And it's aesthetically very beautiful. Mm. But just on that idea of not adaptation, not appropriation, but maybe adaptation... It would be, it's interesting to look at how Shogun Assassin differs from the original text. And uh, I think one of the main ways it differs is the voiceover by the young boy, um, Daigoro. Uh, so the, the story, the plot is kind of reimagined in Shogun Assassin so that we don't really, uh, we lose a lot of uh, stuff from the Lone Wolf and Cub films it was based on. So we don't find out who killed his wife. Um, apparently in 
the film it was recut from there was a, a thing with a rival gang which is not there anymore it's just um, Ogami wandering the wilderness but that narration that lovely sort of deadpan narration by that child which is sort of overlaying all the violence that's happening on screen mm. describing it for us uh, I just thought was was really un- like kind of really weird and odd but kind of incredible and I thought what was interesting I read somewhere it could have just been on Wikipedia so it might not be true or I think it might actually no I think I found another website there's a website called shogun-assassin.com I think I was on there but they said that apparently they got in lip reading experts to help them to create new dialogue to match the the lip movements and that's why the dubbing is so good in this film because what they are talking about is very often completely different from what's in the original films but they've managed to create new english dialogue some of it is a bit rubbish and kind of funny but it fits really closely most of the time how the lips are moving but also by using the voiceover it means they can keep filling in story during those big lengthy passages where they're just walking and nothing's really I happening. I did wonder about that. Um, I did wonder about the lip, the lip syncing because it's mm. the the voice, the dubbing is almost perfectly matching the lips in places, and the yeah, the narration really keeps it moving. Keeps it, it's really sort of a fast paced film. I think part of that yeah. is due to how the narrator is describing events to us. Yeah, and it's interesting that the the focus on the sun. Um, and this idea because children are very central to the original film as well that the opening scene in the in the first lone wolf and cub it starts with a guy beheading a child that's what happens before the credits in the first film starting strong (laughs) it's it's pretty brutal yeah exactly it kind of grabs you by the throat right at the beginning because he is the he's the executioner for the shogun so he has to kill whoever the shogun says has to be killed. And if that's a small child, because this child is going to grow up to be a rival to the clan, then so be it. So that's what he does. He's just an obedient um, executioner for the shogun. But then, yeah, stuff starts to go wrong and the shogun orders his execution. And that's where the wife gets killed and and Mm. so on and so on. But yeah, but in the original films, the child... I don't think ever speaks is not given all that much to do, particularly in the first film. The second film, he has more to do because he actually gets to get out of the pram a couple of times. And at one point he saves his dad's life. But yeah, the child is kind of blank for most of the time in the original two films. And he's just there to remind us that this is a good guy because he's looking after his son, even though he was prepared to kill his son quite near the beginning well he was yeah he offers his son the choice between a sword and a ball um and if the son chooses uh the toy the sort of ball very brightly colored ball yes then he joins his mother in heaven Mm -hmm. if he chooses the sword then he joins his father on his quest of vengeance yeah and uh he does that i think he explains it more in the original film why he decides to do that because it's going to be a very dangerous road that he's going on and obviously people are trying to kill him all the time. So does his child really need to grow up as, in that kind of life? Um, but because he can't make the decision himself, <laughs> he makes the child decide it in the most stupid way possible. That's great parenting. 
Yeah, but thankfully we've because we've already seen him kill a kid as well, which adds well, more not in drama, Assassin, right? Well, no, <laughs> but in 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 Lone Wolf and Cub, we've already seen him behead a child, so this is not impossible that he might do the same again. Well, I mean, he seems to care about his son in Shogun Assassin, but he's also pretty ambivalent in moments as well. So he's prepared to let his son die if it means that he continues on his quest. Yeah. So Because they're already on the path to hell, Mm. basically. His son and him are treading this path. um, And if he dies now or dies later, it doesn't really matter because they're all on this path together. Mm. That's kind of his his attitude. Yeah. isn't another key difference between Lone Wolf and Cub and Shogun the romantic storyline with the Supreme Ninja? Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure I would call it romantic. Well, it's kind of, I think it's version. hinted at. So when um, Ogami is, Possibly, uh, yeah. the, the Supreme Ninja is sent to kill him by the Shogun, isn't he? Mm. Uh, isn't she? And um, yeah. she ends up, uh, they end up sort of developing something akin to maybe not a relationship, but an understanding I love the sequence when because she's sent her highly trained uh, lady ninjas. I think they're called in the film. She, she <laughs> says, "My my female ninjas or my lady ninjas will will kill him." But anyway, th- he's made short work of all of her ninjas. So then she comes to take him on herself, and there's that brilliantly weird moment where it's she so jumps bizarre. up. She jumps out of her clothes and then runs backwards into the distance and it just keeps cutting back to his face and then back to her and she's much further away and then back to him and then back to her again and she's even further away and it kind of reminded me of that moment in Monty Python and the Holy Grail <laughs> with John Cleese running towards the castle from it, really it far kind away. of is like a rewind version of that isn't it yeah it's really weird uh, maybe maybe yeah. when you know yeah when she gets to the end of her run she just looks at the camera and goes it's yeah exactly it is really funny that bit but yeah i suppose in this film in this version she follows him and she's going to kill him but there's less because i think in the original films we see a bit more fighting between them first on the ship or in the water she tries to kill him whilst they're they're fleeing from a shipwreck but and then he saves her and i think in this version it's they get to the saving her much more quickly. Mm. And then obviously the moment in the hut where um, little Daigoro starts to learn the difference between men and women. That is uh, another very strange scene. (laughs) Um, So the Supreme Ninja, they fight and uh, Ogami, the Supreme Ninja and Daigoro are drying off their clothes um, in a hut, right? And there is is Mm -hmm. a scene which looks like it's going to be a rape scene where Ogami grabs uh, the ninja and she struggles. Um, and then we find out that he's taking off her clothes so that they can all huddle together. There's no fire. We must warm ourselves or die. How can you save me? You're trembling. More afraid of peace than war. There are sort of Cut, embracing each other 
the ninja and Ogami around the body of Digoro. And there's close-ups on his dad's nipples and then the Supreme <laughs> Ninja's breasts. And then the kid is just like twang twanging their nipples. Uh, <laughs> and then and then we, we go to a close-up of the Supreme Ninja who's about to, she's about to grab her sword, but then she... The kid twangs her nipples and she somehow decides that she's not going to kill uh, Ogami yeah. and his son. But then, of course, you know, when o what's not kind of maybe apparent is that when Ogami and Digoro leave the hut, the Supreme Ninja is going to have to go back to the Shogun and kill herself because she hasn't carried out her mission, right? She, she should have just joined them. I don't know why she didn't just join them on their quest. That would have been quite fun to just team up for the next few films and jump out of her outfit whenever uh, yeah. she needed a distraction <laughs> just like kind of <laughs> yeah it's brilliant isn't it? it's like uh, it's like an octopus suddenly fleeing the scene and leaving a cloud of ink behind she just she's gone and just leaving her clothes standing or like in a it's like a looney tunes cartoon isn't it? i've never seen this in anything in live action i've never seen yeah. it before in my life it's uh... brilliant which i i suppose again does make does go back to the fact that this is a manga that they're incorporating things that work perhaps better on a comic page than would in real life but mm. we just we buy into it because it feels like it's all part of mm. this world you know if blood can spray 20 feet then why not have somebody jump out of their clothes so this was our for both of us this was the first time we've watched this film yes so i'm interested in what your reaction was um well, I I had seen, so I, I just bought the, uh, there's a Criterion box set that's got all all the films in, which I bought last year. So I'd already watched the first two before I then watched this one. So I came to it the other way around. Most people in the UK certainly would have seen Shogun Assassin first and then seen the proper films later. So I kind of did it backwards. But um, I really loved the, the original films are, are fabulous and I'm looking forward to working my way through the rest of the set. So I found this one mostly quite funny because of how compressed it is of the two films. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, apart from the flashback as to how the wife gets killed and all of that stuff, we miss out the whole, pretty much the whole of the first film. And there's loads of great stuff that happens in that one. And obviously lots of amazing fighting and, and all that sort of thing. Um, so I was mostly quite amused by the Americanness of the voices and the kid's voice mm -hmm. and the disco music, which seems so out of keeping with this sort of traditional period Japanese drama. Um, and so, yeah, so I really enjoyed it. And I was trying to picture myself watching this 30 years ago and how much I would have, it would have blown my mind then. I think it would have. Yeah. I mean, you would have built a, like built your 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 taste around this like your it would yeah. have been such a formative experience i feel sad yeah. that you missed out on that <laughs> well yeah I, I can see why this has been a formative film for so many people definitely and i i wish that i'd had that opportunity but i didn't but one thing i did i was very aware of because i suggested this film for the podcast before i even watched it just because i knew that it would be fun I hoped, but I was really worried about what you were going to think of it. I Why? Was Why were you worried about I what I was going to think? I, I was convinced you were going to hate me for this film. Why? I, well, because, <laughs> because, well, because either you can think this is amazing, or there's the potential to think this is the stupidest film I've ever seen. And <laughs> you and say that you go, say that Adrian. It could go either way. You say that Adrian, as though I don't routinely watch the most stupid films. No, that's true. <laughs> 
That is true. I yeah. No, no. Um, it's please don't take that as a judgment on you. I was just worried that it could go either way. I thought, <laughs> no, I really, I really liked it. I thought it, I was blown away actually. Um, I appreciated the yeah the just the sort of poetic violence of it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter even if you remember the plot, which um, I have, I have trouble yeah. with uh, recalling <laughs> how it all fits together at this time. But uh, I mean, it's the individual scenes um, and the individual sort of uh, fight scenes are just so beautiful. And there are certain mm. shots as well. Like there is this shot where um, Digoro and Ogami are sitting looking at each other, and then we have this circular pan which goes on forever and ever we just spin around and round for no reason mm. no apparent reason um but there are lots of really cool aesthetic choices like that throughout the film which just yeah. um i mean i was watching it thinking i rarely see stuff like this or you know i've never seen something like that it's really sort of interesting and challenging and mm. um off the back of recently watching a whole load of uh quite by the numbers old rank comedies in british films <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a refreshing it was a really a breath of fresh air to be honest to be yeah. able to focus on something that is that is really imaginative i mean no shade towards the the comedies i was watching but oh, no, um it's a very different kind of thing it's a very different kind mm. of aesthetic yes um and it's it, there's there's no repressed british people making double entendres about sex uh so that was that was a that's nice true. difference too yeah yeah that's true <clears throat> i yeah when you compare that with our previous <laughs> sort of stiff upper lipped Brits yeah it's very different yeah and he's uh, he's an interesting character isn't he uh, uh, our lone wolf he's just so dry he just and... stares straight ahead he just, yeah. just goes for it he's just he has no change of expression uh, no he doesn't really have any expressions he's mm. just utterly kind of focused on what he's doing which is why yeah. I said uh, I made that crack about having the face of a, a new parent like the, yeah. the stare of I've not slept uh -huh. for a week um, he certainly has that yeah well I, I mean, when I used to be pushing my kids around in the buggy um, the most I could hope for was a cup holder I would have loved to have had <laughs> some like to have uh, blades in your, yeah, in your antique pram. Yeah. Um, there is a great moment where uh, in one of the fight scenes, Ogami just pushes the cart with Degoro on it into a bunch of ninjas. And then um, Degoro puts his tiny little baby foot on a pedal and then blades yeah. shoot out of the cart <laughs> and just like cut off the legs of the ninjas mm -hmm. as he goes past. And he's just like, yeah, I did that. <laughs> yeah I mean, one thing that is funny with these films is just like people slice like they're made of cake it's like there are no bones in any of these people I, I'm sure it can't be that easy to just lop through a leg like surely bones pretty hard right <laughs> we're, we're back to we're back to considering whether or not uh, what, 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 it, what, what would it look like if we if we yeah. just like randomly hacked and slashed a bunch of people yeah it's a very different kind uh, of podcast we're yeah into. that's true yeah that's probably best not go there but yeah it but I, again but it just it, it's not it's violence but it's not it's not realistic. realistic violence it's not realistic to the point of making you feel sick with what's going on when cut across the neck a sound like wailing winter winds is heard they say i'd always hoped to cut someone like that someday to hear that sound 
to my own neck. It's ridiculous. And now I'm very happy to welcome our guest for this week, Dr. Jonathan Root, Program Leader in Film Studies at the University of Greenwich and something of an expert in Japanese cinema, I think it's fair to say. Um, yes, I would say there are other experts out there, but yes, I've, <laughs> I've studied that for many years and I'm very, very happy for you to, to mention that label. Thank you, Adrian, and thank you, Laura, as well. Thank you both for inviting me. Do you remember the first time you watched Shogun Assassin and what was your reaction? Uh, yeah, that takes me back actually to, I wondered if I'd have a chance to mention it, the various DVD releases of this, of this film that have been over the years. I mean, um, I, was, I was talking to Adrian earlier about this. I'm, I'm uh, a too young, unfortunately, uh, I, I say in a way because, you know, you, uh, being born just after this period, the video nasties era is kind of seen as this shiny nostalgic time of, of notorious exploitative <laughs> films coming out and this was one of the examples of, of, of films being like this being prosecuted um, just through the title and cover art alone so I don't remember ever seeing this title on VHS um, but when these films when the restrictions started to ease of course in the 2000s around the video nasties and other prohibited films um, I do remember this film and uh, the others in the Lone Wolf and Cub series getting released on DVD um, so I think I picked up, I was going to say the 2000s, but I don't think it was in, until the 2010s that I did pick up the whole Lone Wolf and Cub series, um, first on the Arts Magic DVDs, and then I don't think it was until the Eureka release, which I've forgotten the exact date for, uh, that they also released it with Shogun Assassin. And I don't think I'd given Shogun Assassin too much attention at that time because I'd heard the notorious story around it. You know, it's the first two Lone Wolf and Cub films edited together into one film, given a new soundtrack and everything. And at the time when I'd got into Japanese cinema um, was through, uh, you know, the, uh, actually linking to my current research at the moment on Zatoichi, a lot of this focused on Takeshi Kitano because he remade uh, the Zatoichi films in 2003 and I was getting into his earlier gangster films and, and kind of uh, uh, films that he was uh, winning awards at film festivals so that was when I was an undergraduate in the 2000s and so I'd heard a lot about Shogun Assassin at that time and I'd, I'd probably given it a bit of a snobbish view at the time because it was two films cut together given a new soundtrack and I'm like mm -hmm. well, surely you just want to see the original films um, and then picking up the Eureka DVD release made me realise, you know, that it should be appreciated alongside these other films, because if it wasn't for the popularity of Shogun Assassin, then then we wouldn't have become aware of the earlier, uh, you know, original Lone Wolf and Cub films. Um, and that reputation just seems to be further cemented now by the fact that they're all part of Criterion mm. you know, as well. So it, uh, I guess a lot of my familiarity with the films is, is kind of, you know, um, handily or nerdily, you might say, because I've spoken so much about DVD in my research, is, is charted by those DVD releases. Mm. And I can see your point, uh, you, know, uh, you know, coming across this film and it being a recut version of earlier films, but actually having watched it I uh, for kind of the first time recently, actually, I think uh, maybe it is different enough to be considered as a standalone product because, you know, we uh, that kind of narration, the way that the plot is kind of almost entirely 
um, yeah, it's almost kind of changed by that narration. The fact that, you know, we have this kind of storyline, this romantic storyline as well between um, uh, the um, our protagonist and the supreme ninja. Yeah, it, it kind of, it, it stands alone. And I think actually, um, the, I asked about your experience of watching this for the first time, because I get the sense that for a lot of people, this was their introduction to Japanese cinema, um, Shogun Assassin. And that was their introduction to Lone Wolf and Cub as well. Yeah, it very much was, of course, in in the the year that it was first released of course first in the usa and then eventually it would have made it uh, to i imagine cinemas in soho maybe some other mm -hmm. areas around the uk um and yeah very much in 1980s this is this is coming after um you know lots of texts now which are famed for their cultural appropriation of asia shogun assassin also comes out in the same year as shogun the adaptation of the very famous book as well so that's popular on tv that also introduces american audiences and uk audiences to toshiro mifune handily mm. as well um uh you know might have been his first introduction to that actor rather than through Kira kurosawa's very famous films um so yeah just putting that word in front of the title because uh, originally they were going to go with just something like uh assassin or something else i think i can't remember the exact story that tom mez tells um, in his great book on on these films, the Lone Wolf and Cub films, Father, Son, Sword, it's called. Sorry, I'm going to plug mm. that because I'm no, referring to that a lot today. Yeah, um, yeah he he mentions that they put uh, that's kind of one of the reasons that they put that word Shogun in the title is so it's a bit of a marketing ploy because everyone's kind of uh, taken with that book in the 1980s, especially in America, and uh, leading to the TV adaptation. I mean, that's mm. classic exploitation marketing, though, yeah. isn't it? Just change your title to whatever's going to sell the best and if shogun is a word even if nobody really knows what a shogun is stick it on there anyway and you've got recognition that that, that that's uh that, that's one of the interesting sense. things that happens with the recut of shogun assassin with the plot as it is the shogun is portrayed as the bad guy the kind of scraggly haired villain that's mm. constantly pursuing um how he's titled in shogun assassin is lone wolf of course the character's actual name is uh, from the original films is Og uh, and the manga before it as well. These films are an adaptation of a manga. The character's name is meant to be Ogami Ito, but they just call him Lone Wolf for the sake of ease. And they they recar they retitle the villain as the actual shogun when in fact he's like he, he's like the shogun's wouldn't say henchman but kind of conniving advisor. Uh, mm. I'm sure there's Yagyu. isn't there a point in Shogun Assassin where they refer to him as a wizard? I seem to remember Wizard coming up. Yeah. Because I remember watching yeah, thinking, right, hang on. Yeah, that's changing things quite dramatically. Well, they, they might have taken inspiration from some of the later Lone Wolf and Cub films where it does get a bit mystical and some supernatural oh, okay. forces come in. But in these first two films, I think it just gets as crazy as the, the weapons that the assassin has mm. had uh, to, uh, towards the end of the film. One of the ways in which I did become familiar with this film, first of all, was was reading about it at my undergraduate university studies but you've just reminded me before that we used to have on channel five maybe channel four very late at night you know clip shows of weird and wonderful films and tv shows mm. from around the world i forget exactly the name of the one that was on it was either channel five or channel four but they would often show clips from lone wolf and cub films just showing right. how ridiculous the fight scenes would get with the various weapons drawn from the pram and then they'd even show clips from the later lone wolf and cub films where it gets even more ridiculous and Ogami Ito suddenly has a machine gun in the in the pram. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. There was a show hosted by Emily Booth. I think it was on Channel Five um, that showed clips from, yeah, kind of really strange, lots of sort of Argento films and things which 
in this country at the time we weren't that well aware of. Maybe yeah. The only other person doing shows like that was Jonathan Ross. Yeah, time, and it's so. another example of, of cultural appropriation that you yeah. were mentioning earlier, how these things are pointed out as weird and wonderful and, and you may not have seen before, especially at the time, this is like late 90s, early 2000s, they might not have quite made their way onto DVD yet. Mm. This was around the time as well of the um, the Tartan Asian Extreme label, um, which um, as distribution is your area. That must be something you've looked at in some detail, although... Shogun Assassin wasn't uh, part of that. Those those were more recent films. Is that right? Uh, that is right. Yeah. Um, uh, as I said, I think uh, the Arts Magic box set that I mentioned uh, a little while ago that came out in the early two thousands. I don't think that officially had Shogun Assassin as part of it. It wasn't until the Eureka box set. But yeah, I, and then in the early two thousands, uh, yeah. In fact. Yes, starting 2001, 2002, around that time, the Asia Extreme label is established. But no, Shogun Assassin isn't, isn't caught up in that. It's the much more recent, more contemporary um, Asia Extreme films that, that helped to establish that label for Tartan. Mm. Their first big hit, and they start getting the idea to establish that label, is first of all with, I think it's officially it's Battle Royale. And then very quickly after that, I may have this order slightly wrong, though, um, around almost around the same time, if not shortly afterwards, they release uh, Hideo Nakata's Ring and Takashi Miike's Audition, and those three titles really help to cement the Tartan Asia Extreme label. Mm. Is there a danger? And again, even going back to Shogun Assassin, nearly twenty years earlier, one of the risks of labelling these films as Asian Extreme is that you're introducing a sort of element of Orientalism here, and that your you know, again we spoke before about cultural appropriation is there what's your take on the kind of issue of people in the west taking these japanese films or hong kong films or whatever they were and going oh this is amazing because it's so crazy and i don't know is there a is there a kind of danger in how we're viewing those films when they're removed to a greater degree from their origin from their country of origin yeah, there, there, I think there are both uh, advantages and disadvantages to this. The, the uh, disadvantages to this do lead to the notions of Orientalism that you've mentioned in cultural appropriation, which has been critiqued and commented on by um, several other academic researchers like uh, Jamie Sexton and uh, Oliver Dew in particular, I know has written a great article on this. I forget the exact title, but Oliver Dew has written on the fact that he makes a very good point um, about these films being taken over to the USA and UK and becoming popular and part of labels like Asia Extreme it actually tells us more about the British audience, and the international audience for these films um, and shows that, you know, we're, we're the ones desperate to lap this stuff up and, uh, and consume this. So it tells us a lot about that. Uh, there is also the danger of Asia just being stereotyped and, and countries like Japan being stereotyped as weird, wonderful so yeah, that, that is a really good point. Uh, also, in addition to that, I would say that these, these films continue to be celebrated and re-released now. Um, and that, that's really important in themselves um, because it shows the market for these films that still exists, kind of still showing Oliver Dew's point. You know, these aren't just with the Tartania Asia Extreme label now because that's defunct. Mm -hmm. These have been picked up by other labels like Arrow and of course Criterion has mm -hmm. picked up some of these titles, including the, lo the Lone Wolf and Cub films and Shogun Assassin now. So they're part of like established 
um, almost elitist, some people would say, labels regarding the film canon and preserving film history. And uh, if those titles continue becoming popular, then some of the labels get a bit braver with releasing both older titles from these countries, from Japan, uh, Hong Kong, China and other territories, both from years gone by as well as contemporary titles to kind of show people you know, you, you might love these films that have come out, uh, been out for a few decades now, but um, there's other films that we can show you from these countries. And... Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it as an issue of like Shogun Assassin is an appropriation of yeah. this series of films. And then it's in turn been appropriated by um, filmmakers in the West like Tenten, Ter- Quentin Tarantino. But then we also, we can also think of this as a kind of point of access. Like there is an issue of appropriation um, and maybe kind of issues around Orientalism, but there is also a gateway into via this sort of Western package of these, uh, you know, these texts, there is a way into um, Japanese cinema. And for many people, that might be also kind of a point of entry. Um, I was also thinking kind of just in general, really broad strokes ways about the sort of transnational, transglobal porousness between East Asian cinema and Hollywood cinema and the West. So we can kind of um, think about kind of Godzilla or, you know, stuff like um, Kurosawa and Star Wars and Seven Samurai and all of these things, how those how those boundaries have often been quite porous um, over history. Um, So it's not. Maybe there are issues of appropriation and there are also issues of kind of cross-cultural communication and, and things like that to consider. Most definitely. I think those are all really good points to make uh, uh, in terms of, you know, the similarities that you can find across that trans uh, transnationalness and, and cultural communication and porousness that you mentioned, as well as important differences to still be mindful of. You've reminded me of the point I wanted to mention earlier, which is, is curious about the, how the Asia extreme boom started. I'll just briefly go back quickly and cover this. Um, a lot of the Asian horror films and kind of extreme films, because they weren't always horrors, sometimes they were gangster films or fitting mm. into other genres that became popular in the UK and were sometimes nabbed by labels like Tartan and the other imitators that came up like Cine Asia um, and, and other DVD labels. A lot of these films wouldn't initially be that popular in Japan or if they had been popular, you know, they'd be made as very low budget and were easy for the labels to, to pick up and distribute in other countries around the world like UK, USA and in Europe, mainland Europe, a lot of these titles got released as well. So um, just going back to that point earlier is like Asia being stereotyped as this weird and wonderful nation where these films are extremely popular. It wasn't always the case. Actually, these films uh, sometimes became more popular through their international reputation rather than at their own domestic box office. So sorry, I was gone back a few steps there, but going back to Laura's great points that she just made about, um, you you know, the porousness between East Asia and Hollywood. um, Yeah, hugely mindful to be, uh, a hugely appropriate point to be mindful of, because yes, you can see exactly that by looking at the history and impact of Shogun Assassin. We talked about the release in 1980 with the the very, um, you know, popular TV adaptation of Shogun, but Shogun Assassin itself, and and then slowly, you know, in the years following that as they were would first be i imagine the history would go that they would be bootlegged i'm pretty sure i've read about this as well so i'm pretty sure this is the history uh, the original films would be bootlegged into v on vhs first of all in america and then make their way around to other countries um uh leading to as we said the, you know this get caught up in the video nasty phenomenon eventually later making it way into dvd of course before the vhs they they might have officially got um you know a grindhouse cinema release or something 
So they're very slowly being seen by more and more people and, and slowly the text gets like referenced and homaged in bigger budget features. So I'm sure we can all probably think of where we've seen this similar story. Uh, the Mandalorian, apparently the yeah. Mandalorian is very lone wolf and cub. <laughs> yeah, yeah. John Favreau admits that in one of the, the making of documentaries on Disney Plus. So you can find Disney saying it um, in all its glory that yes, we're inspired by Kurosawa. Yes, we're inspired by lone wolf and cub. So that's one of the many examples. Um, Tom Mez, again, in his great book on this subject, also mentions um, that this inspired uh, many Hollywood stories like Road to Perdition. Uh, that was uh, started off as a graphic novel, very much as the original Lone Wolf and Cub saga did in Japan by Kazuo Koike, who also did the manga for Lady Snowblood and Crying Freeman. Um, which have been adapted into films as well. So his uh, Lone Wolf and Cub manga, first of all, inspired the graphic novel um, Road to Perdition, which is, of course, the basis of the, the Tom Hanks film. Mm, cool. Um, so, uh, Jonathan, do you mind telling us a bit about Zatoichi and you know, how you got interested in writing this book? Uh, yes, I'm very, very happy to talk about that because, again, I'm glad to say that. Very I happy to plug that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very happy to well, I, I am and I, I, I'm not. I mean, it's not out yet and I will happily come back on the show and tell you when it is out. But that's that's ongoing at the moment. But there are some great links that I can make to Shogun Assassin as well, because as we've as you've already established, this is the editing Shogun Assassin is the editing together and, and re-soundtracking in both both dialogue and music of the first two Lone Wolf and Cub films, Sword of Vengeance and Baby Carter at the River Styx. And that whole six film series was produced uh, not just by, I think he was an executive or co-producer, the star himself, Thomas Abura Wakayama, but the main producer for these films was Wakayama's brother, who's Shintaro Katsu, who is the original Zatoichi. He played, uh, oh. Shintaro Katsu played Zatoichi in 25 films from wow. 1962 to 1973. I mean, that's an impressive run. It is, uh, yeah. It, it so gets even more impressive. I'm not the, finished yet. <laughs> 25 films in 11 yeah. years. Yeah, 25 films. Then he came back. Oh, I'll just quickly mention now he came back in 1989 for a comeback film, which didn't quite work for, for him. But before that, he'd played the character from... 1974 to 79 on tv in 100 episodes as well so after the film series kind of kind of dries up in 1973 that's the last um film release he has as the character he decides to just take the character onto tv for for 100 episodes and manages to make that work up until 1979 then i said uh, as i said he had the 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 brief attempt at a comeback in 1989 which sadly didn't work out for him uh, he that's what he's primarily known for in Japan you you stop someone this may be, might happen less so these days because of the popularity of the Takeshi Kitano remake but um, apparently the name Shintaro Katsu is still well remembered around many areas of Japan you you mentioned that name to someone they'll probably say Zatoichi or Ichi-san I know I have to admit I've never seen any of the Zatoichi films but how do they, it's interesting that they're made by the same company how do they compare in terms of the violence which is obviously what Shogun Assassin and the Lone mm. Wolf films are particularly known for is this uh, operatic blood spraying yeah. everywhere kind of stuff. Were the Zatoichi films like that as well or was it a different style? They they became like that. They didn't start off that way. Um, it's interesting how uh, Lone Wolf, uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub films fit into the almost parallel with the the later history of the Zatoichi franchise because they're they're uh, they're also impressive themselves. Lone Wolf and Cub they're released very quickly in the space of 1972 to 1974. These mm. six films all come out. 
and they abruptly finish because uh, apparently the story that Tom Mez tells is the story is so popular, the manga in Japan, that there's talks of a TV adaptation because TV is becoming the next big thing in 1970s Japan and that's why Katsu takes Zatoichi over to television as well. Um, so there's there's rumblings of that starting to happen with Lone Wolf and Cub, and they they may take also Wakayama's portrayal over to TV if he wants to. But apparently he was unhappy with those ideas, and an idea was even floated that someone else might play uh, uh, Ogami Ito on the TV screen rather than Wakayama. And one story goes, no one's exactly sure why the film suddenly series suddenly ends because it, it ends incompletely with these six films. Um, but Wakayama very subtly stopped wanting to play the character and people, uh, some people suggest, especially the people that Tom Mez has spoken to, this is because Wakayama was unhappy about a TV adaptation. The, the films themselves um, released very quickly from 1972 to 1974. The Zatoichi films are still going by that time and the Zatoichi films at that time have become more bloody and more exploitative. Um, there's even a really interesting one which Katsu himself directs. He never directs any of the Lone Wolf and Cub films. He's just a producer. But he does start to direct more of the Zatoichi films and more of the TV episodes when that's established. Um, Zatoichi in peril in 1972. I'm really doubting myself. I've been writing a book on this. You'd think I'd remember all this. I'm pretty <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, I have fun. terrible recall. Oh. Even when I've I've spent years reading through a subject and I still get the dates wrong because I'm just in the moment. My yeah. brain just refuses to cooperate. Yeah, I, 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 I oh desperation. Sorry, that's it. I'll get the title right now. So yes, I have similar problems, Laura. Even though I've been writing a book on this, trying to remember all the Japanese names as well. So Shintaro Katsu directs uh, Zatoichi in Desperation in 1972 and that's uh, particularly noteworthy for suddenly becoming quite more bloody and exploitative I mean at one point Ichi is even tortured by the bad guys before he eventually as as happens in all these films you know he, he vanquishes the villains and saves the day um, but he's he's tricked by uh, a prostitute into sleeping with her so uh, that he can be kidnapped by the Yakuza and then tortured. It gets all of a sudden very bloody and exploitative compared to the earlier entries, which were kind of more family-oriented entertainment. Even going back to the very start of the franchise in 1962, um, th this series made Katsu a star. And the first film is, is trying to act as a star vehicle for him, for him to show his acting, acting skills, basically. Um, but he's not seen that way by the studio at Daae at a time. But all of a sudden, this, this almost overnight success with the first Zatoichi film um, changes that, and they decide to keep it going as a franchise. But you can tell that was an unintended consequence, because the first film is actually more a much more sombre affair, where Zatoichi is very reluctant to draw his sword and get involved in this Yakuza conflict, because he happens to know one of the Yakuza, and he's asking him as a friendly favour to help in this conflict with a rival clan he's very reluctant to draw his sword it's kind of a rumination on you know the pointlessness of violence mm -hmm. but then Dae were surprised suddenly by the success of this film uh, maybe there were more readers of the original short story than they intended it was 1948 that this uh, character actually turned up in a story and some of that author's other works have been adapted and then someone got the idea in 1962 to uh, adapt this into a, a story for Dae um, so Dae is suddenly surprised by this success and wants to turn it into a franchise and see if they can make Katsu into a star, um, which they did. Um, it was in the same year, 1962, the second film, the tale, uh, 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 imaginally titled The Tale of Zatoichi Continues, 
um, <laughs> comes out and it's it's very much more action orientated. All of a sudden you have so many of the tropes in Zatoichi being established, like him being surrounded by a circle of villains with the swords drawn and him having to fighting them all. Um, funnily enough, in that in that first sequel, his brother does turn up as well. He he regularly um, turns up also in one of the TV episodes as well as a as a villain. Um, and he does so in the in the second films after which he continues. And then as the series slowly gets more popular for Daie, as many samurai films do throughout the 1960s. But at the end of the 60s to the to the 70s, the Yakuza film, the modern day Yakuza film, very different to older examples of the Yakuza film, very much popularized by Kinji Fukusaku's battles without honor or humanity, if you've oh, heard yeah. of them. That mm -hmm. suddenly becomes very popular at, Japan, uh, at the Japanese box office. Uh, and so the, the, the Shambara films, the kind of samurai films, as we know them here, but they're known as sword action or Shambara films in Japan, um, are, are competing with this other popular genre being made by lots of studios. So they think they have to up the ante by adding in more gore, sex and violence. Um, so that's the reason why the Zatoichi films kind of turned that way in, in, in the 70s, um, be kept more exploitative with their violence. And Shintaro Katsu also decides, oh, this is surely what the people want. I'll produce the Lone Wolf and Cub films. And not only that, he also releases a trilogy of films, Hanzo the Razor, which is very much about just sex and violence. Uh, Adrian's smiling like he's maybe heard of those films. No, but I want to see them just based on the name. That's great. <laughs> you'll, you'll probably enjoy the premise as well, Adrian, if you've, if you've not heard of these films before. Um, it's Shintaro Katsu again playing Hanzo the Razor himself in these films. He, he plays uh, a, a kind of uh, Japanese medieval, or late medieval, I would say, because this, this happened in the 1800s, uh, policeman. And uh, he has a way of getting information from female suspects that is unique to him alone. How it's politely put is he, he trains his penis to be as strong as possible. Oh, my God. So, oh, my God. So, so he can yeah. pleasure women into giving them the information that now, he wants. Now I'm, now I'm regretting expressing an interest. <laughs> oh, I think it sounds amazing. Uh, I'm going to watch yeah, that. The same <laughs> so what I find really surprising about those films and the later Zatoichi ones, as well as Lone Wolf and Cub films, they're released by Toho who's the uh, one of the biggest, uh, this is still the state today, they're, they're one of the biggest Japanese film studios out there. They're responsible for so many of Kurosawa's films and the Godzilla films. Mm. And yet in the 1970s as well, they're trying to keep the, the film, uh, the, uh, the cinema audience coming back to see their films at the cinema by releasing also loads of these exploitative films in the in the 1970s. I mean, like there is a sort of British cinema in the 1970s was really exploitative. And there is a film series about a man who um, either gets a penis transplant. Yeah, he gets a penis transplant and oh, yeah. then his penis like gets him into trouble. So literally this is happening in British cinema, <laughs> the level of exploitation in mainstream cinema in the Percy's, 70s. Percy's progress. Oh God, yeah, yeah, it's terrible. But of course there's no, there's no yeah. violence or um, amazing balletic, operatic, beautiful kind of like fight scenes. It's just all a bit shit. But there is, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, if, if we're going to continue in that vein, there's a black exploitation film called Welcome Home Brother Charles about a vietnam vet with a killer penis oh god wow we're getting into yeah. fil films, so films about people with probably, um, amazing penises <laughs> we want to move away from that rather quickly <laughs> um so just coming back to zetoichi how did that fare with western distribution were western audiences 
seeing these films in the 60s and 70s or did that come later as well? I've heard some small stories about some sometimes uh, some of the Zatoichi films, maybe the first one, uh, the only evidence I have this, I didn't get hold of it sadly, but I saw a film poster once up for sale on eBay where it had all been translated to English and suggesting this film was going to be shown somewhere like Cannes or some other international oh. film festival, the first Zatoichi film. So it may have got briefly some showings there. Some of the earlier Zatoichi films may have been shown at the, you know, stereotypical grindhouse cinemas, um, especially in the 1970s, but I haven't got that much evidence of that. What I, I believe has happened now, especially to the state where um, uh, at, the, at the moment, Zatoichi again has been uh, taken in by the Criterion label. First, it was released on Region 1 in 2013, and then it was about five or six years later. Um, it, get, it gets released in Region 2 as well. This, this wonderfully, elaborately designed, I absolutely love it. Even my uh, partner loves it. Uh, I imagine how we've slowly got to that point where, where this has been taken in by the Criterion label is that I would say that films like Shogun Assassin and then uh, the later releases on home home video and DVD of like the Lone Wolf and Cub films. And around that time in the 2000s, I think you've got the first BFI releases of Kurosawa's films. Um, along uh, Alongside all of that, you get people becoming aware of Zatoichi, I imagine because of the production context links. Um, the, uh, people learning, oh, it's the same people involved that also made these Zatoichi films, some of which some people may have heard of because there's crossover films in the Zatoichi franchise, like Zatoichi meets Yojimbo, and he does fight Toshiro Mifune. Oh, okay. um, and there's also Zatoichi meets the one-armed swordsman, who's a popular Hong Kong character. Um, and so people will be familiar with some of these titles and then there becomes an impetus to see all of these films. Right. So, um, Jonathan, how common was it for uh, an American company, um, like an indie exploitation company, to take films, uh, like Japanese films, and cut them together and release them? Like, was this something that people did or was it, you know, something unusual? It seems to be something unusual because um, uh, Tom Mayers actually has a lot of praise for what um, David Weissman and uh, Robert Houston did for Shogun Assassin United. And he's not the only one, actually. I found a lot of appreciation now for this film, looking back nostalgically on this, how, pe how people came across this perhaps at a very young age and actually have a lot of uh, a lot of appreciation for this um, at the time. It seems to be quite unusual because uh, a lot of you know care was put into this adaptation and this redub of the film and even giving it its own soundtrack. Um, I've heard of other cases, I'm sure you're aware of this as well, where this has been done with early European films, particularly the films of uh, you know Ingmar Bergman um, being recut and re-released at uh, American cinemas. This particularly happens, I think, with Summer with Monica. Yeah, that's true. It's a bit more slapdash. Like I know lots of like the market for second feet for well, second features, um, B movies, uh, in the thirties, forties, and fifties. There's lots of instances of distributors taking films, buying cheap films, um, cheap American programmers, cutting them together, releasing them as a feature film in Europe, or you know, vice versa. Um, so yeah, that does happen. But you're right in that it, it does seem like there's such a level of care over this, yeah. and it's kind of it's almost an it's not an adaptation, but it feels like it's a meaningful um, recut, if you like. It brings, it adds more meaning to the film. It almost kind of exists as a standalone film. So yeah, I just, I, 
I've never seen anything kind of quite like that. I've seen people slap, you know, putting stuff, chucking stuff together just to make a cheap buck, uh, you know, a specialist cinema. But this seems to be a cut above, really. Yeah, and it didn't seem to happen really again since. Um, Tom Mez does briefly mention that um, some other American filmmakers, it wasn't it wasn't Weissman in, in Houston again, but some other American filmmakers uh, tried to do the same again with uh, re-dubbing Baby Cart to Hades, which I think is the, the third or fourth film in the series, and retitling that Lightning Swords of Death. Um, as, a, as a sequel and they thought they could you know uh, have the same success again which they didn't surprise surprise but the poster is is very much going off the uh, the Bruce Lee um, phenomenon of the time uh, Tom Mez has a picture of it in his book where they say raise a kung fu fist against Ogami and he'll chop it off um, <laughs> so showing that they're trying to exploit you know, the Bruce Lee films mm. very much for the marketing of this film. And again, uh, that sort of goes back a little bit to what we were saying before about the sort of Orientalist approach where it's it doesn't matter that one of those is from China and one is Hong, is Japan. Yeah. It's all the same. You know, it's basically yeah. what they're saying. Yeah, it just seems like those distributors haven't paid as much attention as, as Houston and Wiseman did. Mm. And what you see happen since is that there, there have been some quite lazy... Uh, redubs and subtitling of both Hong Kong and Japanese films and maybe films from other East Asian countries as well that first make their way onto VHS and then DVD quickly when DVD takes off in the late 90s and early 2000s. Happening for a, a, a theatrical release for a film, I guess the closest comparison I can think of at the moment is when The Raid was given a new soundtrack for its global theatrical release. Oh, okay. um, I've still not come across Gareth Evans's film with the original Indonesian music soundtrack, but by the time I think it was Sony picked this up for global distribution, they got Mike Shinoda involved from Linkin Park to do the music, and that really helped with the marketing of the film. It's not the same thing, but a few weeks ago I was teaching on Studio Ghibli, and um, like uh, thinking about we were thinking about how those films are redubbed for American audiences, um, mm. not not recut, but how uh, how that how that label Ghibli becomes something different when it's yeah. kind of distributed with different voice actors and different and different dubbing mm. um, in America and in Europe and in Britain. Yeah, some of those happened much later for their either re-releases at cinemas or their Blu-ray releases. Like, I think it's uh, one of the older Ghibli films was kind of remarketed on the basis of the voice cast when they got Daisy Ridley involved. Very recently, it's got to be in the last three or four years with, with Daisy Ridley in, in the title role. So, yeah, that's, that's an interesting trend. I guess I wish it was different. But a wish is only a wish. Thank you everyone for listening and thanks to our guest, uh, Dr. Jonathan Root, for coming along and uh, talking, um, talking us through some really interesting facts and stories around uh, the release of this film. Um, if you want to uh, get in contact with us, you can do so via Twitter. Uh, our handle is at Second Features. Um, and you can also send us an email. I keep forgetting our email address. Adrian, what is it again? Secondfeaturespod at gmail.com secondfeaturespod at gmail.com. Thank you. Um, so yeah, thanks also to you, Adrian, as my co-host. 
Thank you for some it's... interesting chat. I think yes. I think we did well considering that we'd we'd seen it for we'd seen this film for the first time only yeah. a couple of weeks ago. And we've proved how good we are at bl- just at blagging. Blagging our way through. <laughs> our way through. I've built a career on it. Oh God! Don't say that. <laughs> People might believe you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, everybody. See you again soon for a bit of feminist slasher film. Bye. Bye.